Hi guys, and thanks for joining. We are so pumped for this premiere episode, and we've got an absolutely cracking guest here to kickstart the Wow Crowd series. He was Nike's International Director of Sports Marketing for many years and worked closely with many of the world's famous or most famous individuals. Now he's Australia's most in-demand professional mentor and leadership coach, working with business leaders in tech giants like Xero, Facebook, Macquarie Bank. Um, he also works with governments, professional athletes and sporting teams across the globe, explaining how a deep focus on authenticity, vulnerability and connection can create a life that balances achievement and fulfillment. Ash Barty, world number one tennis player, credits him with making her a better player and a better person. He also mentors Richmond Football Club captain Trent Cotchin. Thank you, I'm a Tigers man. And world champion surfer Stephanie Gilmore. Here to unpack all of this and provide you with some perspective on how this applies in the world of advice, folks. I'm joined here today by none other than Ben Crow. Ben, welcome to the Wow Crowd. Thank you very much, and yeah, thanks for having me as well. Love that, uh, love that opening. You can keep talking. <laughs> well, look, it's great to have you here, and I just want to kick off, mate, because I know we've got a lot, lot to unpack here, but. I want to know which athletes have impressed you the most in terms of reframing their mindset and perspective. Hmm. Great question. I think internationally, Andre Agassi is probably my favourite story in terms of that transformation, you know, that hero's journey from pretty much living an inauthentic life um, from the moment he you know bought, grew up in Las Vegas. Everything in his life was pretty much a lie in terms of his relationship with his dad and he hated tennis and he was really distracted by the persona more so than the person. And it's really hard to live an inauthentic life. And he lost his way quite significantly and he started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and divorced from his first wife, Brooke Shields, and his relationship with his family. And he blew out to 141 in the world, if you can believe that, after becoming number one in the world and winning a few grand slams. But... Um, having the courage to lean in to make sense of who he was as a person first and foremost and then um, going from that I guess that loner mentality to creating a team around him he was the first tennis player that said we not I and then um, reconnected with life you know um, reconnected with tennis he got back to number one and won another four grand slams um, he reconnected with love he found Steffi Graf and had two beautiful kids with Steffi but most importantly, found his why, not his what and his and how, but more so his why, which is around education and subsequently set up a, a for-profit business that has um, made over $1.4 billion and set up 64 charter schools across North America with Michelle Obama and a bunch of other ambassadors. But on a, on a domestic level in Australia, um, Ash Barty and, and Trent Cotchin are probably my, my two favourite stories. When Trent Cotchin lost his way in 2016 and couldn't decide whether to even keep playing AFL, let alone keep captaining Richmond Football Club. And Ash Barty, after two really significant setbacks in 2015 when she retired from the sport at the tender age of 17, if you can believe that, and then in 2018 had another setback. Both of those individuals kind of lent in to the risk and the uncertainty, the emotional exposure to work out who they were and were able to separate their self-worth from whether they won or lost you know, a game of football or a game of tennis and were able to kind of celebrate their imperfections but find that unconditional self-worth. And both of them, uh, I guess, realise that you know, your greatest growth comes from your darkest times because it unlocks this beautiful sense of, I guess, humility and, and curiosity. But Australia has so many magnificent stories of that against the odds um, leaning into adversity, whether it's Anna Mears, 
uh, arguably the world's greatest cyclist, or Stephanie Gilmore, you know, the world's greatest surfer. Both of them overcame significant setbacks to really get that perspective, if you like, of being a good human first and a great athlete second, and then going on that journey, what they're able to achieve is, is quite extraordinary. But Ben, I'm, I'm curious because you look at athletes and, and, and there's a certain element of, well, there's a huge component of that is confidence, right? But I'm, I'm just curious to know what is more important? Is it confidence or happiness? <clears throat> yeah, in terms of the confidence versus happiness question that we get asked quite a bit, there's two questions that every human on the planet has to answer. The first one is, who am I? And the second one is, what do I want? Answering that first question, who am I? is typically where we'll find confidence, certainly confidence in ourselves and being comfortable in our own skin and being able to you know, celebrate our imperfections and embrace our weird, as we say, but also find that unconditional self-worth and being able to own our story. Answering that second question, what do I want, is typically where we'll find confidence in our journey, but it's also where we'll find happiness, especially if in unlocking what we want, identifies not only our personal and professional goals, but also our motivations, our values, our needs, and that sense of purpose, if you like, to be able to live our lives with a sense of fulfillment and contribution and purpose just beyond ourselves. Um, so happiness in itself can never be pursued, if you like. It has to be ensued as a consequence of living a life of, of purpose and meaning. And that's why confidence should always be, the, I guess, the, the bigger priority, if you like. Confidence in yourself, confidence in your journey, and then performance confidence as well. And typically, if you, through that journey of working out what you want, we can really find our, our sense of purpose. Happiness will be a consequence of that. And I've been doing a lot of work in the, in the banking industry in Australia over the last year or two, and almost since the Royal Commission, um, there's an entire generation of the 50 plus alpha males who have kind of woken up and they've achieved, but they're not fulfilled. You know, they've made an enormous amount of money um, and they've been extrinsically motivated, money, fame, status, recognition, and so forth. But it's almost been to the detriment of their intrinsic motivations, you know, things that really light them up as a, as a person. And they've they kind of woken up, the kids have grown up and moved out of home. They're kind of thinking shit, what just happened in the last two decades, you know, in terms of where their perspective was and what they were prioritizing and, and how they were thinking about themselves. So from that point of view, um, I think finding confidence in terms of purpose will then unlock a sense of happiness um, and fulfillment beyond ourselves. You, um, I've, I've heard you talk a number of times, you talk about letting go of the things you can't control. And you've mentioned there the Royal Commission. It was interesting when all that was coming to light, I spoke to advisors, some of whom were leaving the industry Others were saying, bring it on. So there's a real difference in mindset. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit in terms of those things we can't control? Yeah, absolutely. Performance mindset, and, and during the pandemic, this has been a massive um, priority. It's probably a macro trend at the moment. Um, as a global society, we don't do uncertainty very well. And because uncertainty is one of the definitions of vulnerability, we don't do vulnerability very well um, at, the, at the same time. But um, performance mindset is the moment of performance, how we can focus our attention on the things we can control and the best version of ourselves and not get distracted by the things that typically sabotage our performances, which is the fear of failure or, or focusing on the result, fear of success. And 
when the pandemic first hit, I was asked quite a lot um, how my work had changed in terms of the mentoring work with CEOs or professional athletes. And with athletes, the work quickly shifted overnight from performance coaching to life coaching or leadership coaching, which to be fair was always part of the gig, right? But they weren't performing. There was no sport happening around the world. So um, they hate this and I love it in terms of thinking beyond sport. But with CEOs and executives, accounting firms and so forth, the work almost shifted the other way from more holistic leadership and life coaching to, dare I say it, performance coaching because life itself right now is a performance and we are so distracted by the things we can't control but wanting to control it, which is the definition of anxiety, yeah, or the definition of stress or pressure or worry. We don't understand how powerful acceptance is as one of the pillars of, of perspective, if you like. So the goal is to identify what our flavor of distraction is and then let it go, yeah? Accept the things we can't control and get them out of our psychology and focus our attention back on the only things we can control, which is the best version of ourselves at the same time. And understanding that differential is really, really important. And I think that's why we are so distracted today as a human race, because we're not realizing that we're focusing our attention on these things we can't control as much. So understanding what I can control and what I can't control is a really simple exercise, but it helped me understand where my focus of attention is at this particular moment. That's great. You also talk a lot about, and we hear it all the time about understanding your why, mm. you know, as it relates to, you know, a lot of people in this call in the advice industry, why, why is it important to understand your why? Yeah. Um, it's not a new religion, by the way. I think Mark Twain said over 150 years ago, the two most important days in our life are the day we're born and the day we find out why. I think we've just got distracted away from that. Every generation has its challenges. In the 1960s, it was around conformity. In the, in the 1980s, it was around materialism. And today it's depth, yeah, depth of meaning. Where am I going? Where are we going? Kind of WTF. And, and every business in the world, every person in the world lives and dies on the success of the same three things, how we think, what we prioritize, and the decisions that we make. And if we can think differently, in particular about why we exist, not what, not how, but the why, we will prioritize different things, yeah? And make different decisions and choices in, in this world. So um, zero as an example, yeah? They don't exist to sell software. That's just what they do, but that's not why they do it. You know, they exist to help business owners create, you know, beautiful businesses. And because of that's how they're thinking, they'll prioritize different, whether it's product development or, service arrangements and so forth with clients and so forth. They're just thinking differently, if you like, from their from their competitors based on that purpose. So, you know, my prosperity, um, you know, you guys don't exist to provide software solutions either. You know, you exist to help clients live their best possible financial lives. Um, and it's so powerful when you unlock that why, because you go from transactions to transformational relationships. You know, Toyota don't exist to make cars. That's just what they do, but that's not why they exist. They exist for emissions and no emissions, you know, zero car accidents and zero carbon dioxide emissions. Um, so when you start elevating the aperture lens of your life and start thinking broader, so, you know, you might be an accountant, you might work in tax, you might work in financial planning, yeah, and that's what you do, but that's not why you do it. That doesn't define the depth of you. So lifting your aperture lens higher and start thinking more broader about what is my why? What is my purpose? 
if you like. And a purpose statement is effectively just to do something for someone else. The great thing is you get to decide what it is you want to do for someone else and who it is you want to do it for. And you only need one other person to form a community in order to contribute to their lives. And a purpose statement might be as simple as um, to help those who fly a kite imagine a rocket. <laughs> yeah. Or it might be um, to create an environment to help others realize their potential. Um, and I think today coming out of the pandemic, in terms of our perspective about what's important in our lives, purpose and purpose mindset is going to be the, one of the most um, in-demand and important perspectives that we can develop from ourselves. Because then we'll shift from, I guess, a, a generation of human doings into human beings. And to develop a purpose statement is really just breaking down a smaller set of kind of bite-sized questions, which might be as simple as, um, what really excites me about helping others? Yeah, what am I really passionate about? Or what was I passionate about as a kid that I want to then continue throughout the rest of my life? What legacy do I want to leave um, the world? Or at my funeral, what do I want said about me in terms of my impact on others? When you start to break down these smaller bite-sized questions, you can start to really think about, okay, what is it that I do? Who do I do it for? You know, what do these people want or need in their lives? And how do their lives change as a consequence of how I show up in amongst theirs? And it's not a philanthropic exercise, by the way. Um, organizations create the most extraordinary competitive advantage and point of difference once you unlock purpose and purpose mindset. Um, and Pete McCarthy and the founders of My Prosperity, I mean, his whole life, I mean, I've known him for a, a long, long time. And his whole life has been around this helping others. It's never been about making a dollar. It's always been about making a difference. And you can kind of tell when people have that genuine empathy and care for others. It shows up in the smallest of areas, not just product development and communications, but it shows up in service deliveries because you've got to want to you know, care for others. Um, but it's amazingly powerful for your culture as well when you unlock purpose mindset. Um, and that's what Richmond Football Club have done and the Australian cricket team have done. And um, it's amazing. You lose sense of ego and identity when you start thinking about helping others. And that might be your teammates or your employees, your fellow colleagues in the organization, or it might be your customers. But Purpose Mindset just creates this most beautiful place of caring about others, serving others, loving others, you know, um, being interested, not interesting kind of thing. And it's the ultimate, you know, chapter three of the hero's journey. When you, it's typically where we find our bliss as well when we stop thinking about ourselves and start and start caring about others. It's so true. I mean, I, I'm involved in a number of tech companies and that's one of the things that, you know, I talk about a lot and, and you see from others that get involved in tech companies, you're always looking for that purpose and you always find those founders mm -hmm. that are really, you know, have a strong purpose in mind. Just to change tack a little bit, um, then we, we're going through a bit of a knowledge revolution have done for some time and, and organisations today have a huge interest in data. I mean, what do you think is next on the, on the agenda here? <laughs> yeah, I say, yeah, we talk about that a lot in terms of um, this information revolution driven by you know, technology and the internet. So there's so much data and big data and reports and emails and meetings. And if you ask anyone how they're feeling, we're all saying busy, <laughs> yeah? Now, busy is not an emotion. Busy is an addiction. And we've become so addicted to this growth um, and, uh, and technology revolution. But I think as a consequence of that, our brains and our lives can't handle that pervasiveness of what's happening. And as a consequence, we become the most addicted, medicated 
in debt, obese, adult generation in the history of the planet in terms of how we're feeling. So it's a great question in terms of what the next revolution is. I mean, we've had the agricultural revolution. It's always based off a specific human need. So agriculture was food, industrial revolution was shelter, scientific revolution was medicine, and technology revolution has been information. I genuinely believe the next revolution coming through will be an emotional health revolution driven by the need for confidence and happiness, one of your earlier questions. And you think about just the dominant cultures of our time. You had the counterculture in the 60s and 70s, and you're a rock star, so you'd understand that. We had the pop culture of the 80s and 90s, and we had the internet culture in the 90s and 2000s and so forth. I genuinely believe the next dominant culture will be a connection culture. Yeah, and so the next revolution will be an emotional health revolution supported by this connection culture. In terms of what we're craving on a human level, not just a professional level, we want to get back to the human side of things. And I think coming out of the pandemic, I think this great reset will be a focus on human beings, not human doings. Because if you have to do something or achieve something in order to be someone, You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be content. You'll never be fulfilled. You'll never feel enough. And you certainly won't feel unconditional love because it'll always be conditional upon having to do something or, or achieve something. And we'll end up going external. What happens there? If you go external for your self-worth, we'll get distracted by three major <laughs> factors that are distracting us from who we actually are. The first one is we get caught up in materialism. And once I buy that car or that handbag or that watch, then I'll be enough. And it never works. Then we get caught up in extrinsic motivations, which is either money. You know, once I make that million dollars, then I'll be enough. Or social status, once I become famous. Or corporate status, once I get that promotion, then I'll be enough. Or worst of all, we get caught up in craving recognition. You know, we start caring what others are thinking about us and, and saying about us rather than what I think about myself and what I say to myself. We effectively want others to give us what we're not prepared to give ourselves, which is just that unconditional self-worth. So um, coming out of this, I've been asking a lot of my clients, you know, um, regardless of whether they're religious or, or they believe in God, you know, I just say, right, just for the purpose of the exercise, let's just say the world's trying to tell us something through this pandemic. You know, what do you reckon she's trying to, t what do you reckon she's trying to say to us? And overwhelming responses coming back from people all over the world is just to slow down <laughs> and be still and breathe and connect with myself, connect with my family, connect with my friends, connect with nature. You know, that human, and connection is why we're here as a human race. You know, it's why we exist. We're neurobiologically hardwired for connection, which gives purpose and meaning to our lives. But shame is this fear of disconnection. And this shame epidemic, this feeling that I'm not enough something, has been really kind of pervasive amongst our culture. So connection, I'm getting back to that, what, what's really important in our lives and not getting distracted by external things and extrinsic things from our self-worth. I think that's, that's one of the, def, you know, the, the, the dominant revolutions that will probably come through, I'm hoping, as a consequence of uh, the, the Great Reset. I agree, and I hope you're right, Ben. I'm going to ask one last question. Um, we've heard you say win the morning to win the day. Um, what can people do to win the morning and therefore win the day? What's your tip for those listening in? Yeah, in terms of winning the morning and, and winning the day, you know that time when you first wake up in the morning and you're not kind of awake yet, but you're not asleep anymore. Either. You're in that kind of dozing state. 
that's often the best time to win the morning and win the day. And on the, on the basis that we are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, if we can start to own our story before we even get out of bed, because we're so distracted today by these other storytellers trying to tell us who we are. So one of the greatest techniques to win the morning is just to start the day with a gratitude manifesto, which means you say to yourself, I'm so thankful and grateful for dot, dot, dot. Because gratitude is one of the greatest antidotes to this sense of entitlement or this sense of expectation or getting distracted by our diary and that shoulda, coulda, woulda. Um, and you can be grateful for anything. You're grateful for materialistic things or you can be grateful that you got to sleep in a bed or you got to have a hot shower. Yeah, or you got to have a hot breakfast, which a third of the world doesn't get to do. And it's not the activity where the power is. It's just the act of priming our consciousness to be appreciative, to be thankful, to feel lucky, to be grateful, shifts our perspective in the most beautiful way before we even get out of bed. If you've got a purpose statement, right, reclaim that purpose statement. Yeah, How can I create an environment to help someone else realize their potential today? Yeah, How can I make their day? If you don't have a purpose statement, just ask yourself this question. How can I be the best part of someone else's day? <laughs> yeah. Um, but words are verbalized thoughts. So if we reclaim these words, if you've got a courage mantra, and a courage mantra could be as simple as I'm a warrior, not a warrior, or I'm imperfect, but I'm worthy, or I am enough, or I've got this. Yeah. If you've got, your, if you've got values that you can draw down upon, and it just might be courage or love, or it could be perseverance or resilience, or it could be optimism or positivity. But once you really connect with what we truly value and then work out how I, how I can behave and live my life in accordance with those values to hold myself accountable to myself. But what happens if we don't own our story before we get out of bed? Then the three biggest storytellers will try and tell you who you are, which is the media industry, the social media industry, and the advertising industry. Now the media industry, in particular news media, is primarily negative. It's a deliberate formula. But we've also got this negative reptilian bias in our brains. So it's negativity meeting negativity, which is why we feel so grumpy if we're letting news media determine our story of who we are, yeah? The second one is social media industry, and that's often driven by FOMO, fear of missing out, or FOPO, <laughs> fear of other people's opinions. And we get distracted by, you know, comparing ourselves and that sense of perfectionism, you know, especially for young girls and in particular on Instagram, if you like, we get so distracted by what's happening there. And the third one is the advertising industry. And that's unfortunately these days predicated around shame because you're not enough until you buy that car or that handbag. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't created to do that. It was created to promote attributes and benefits of products, but it's got so clever in its psychology now. Now, they're the three biggest storytellers trying to tell you who you are. So you either own your own story yeah, and make your own, realize it's our decisions, not the conditions that determines our mindset and our self-worth and our attitude. Because we're in total control of our emotions because we're in total control of the words that we send from our conscious mind to our unconscious mind that determines my emotions. Once we realize that, if you're feeling calm, it's impossible, scientifically, medically impossible to feel anxious at the same time. But the opposite is also true. If you're feeling anxious, it's impossible to be calm. And you decide. So, so the best way to do that, if you wanna create that right mindset, is go back and find a memory when you're absolutely at your best. Yeah, And I guarantee 
if you think about the words that best describes how you're feeling in that memory, you'll find a derivative of calm or confident or composed or focused or strong or happy or free. So reclaim the best version of you and practice those words because our mind is like a muscle and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger once we reclaim the best version of ourselves before we even get out of bed in the morning. And it is extraordinary what happens to our psychology and our physiology once we do that. Yeah, so create those right morning rituals, those really strong mindset habits um, and the right system for us to kind of win the morning. And the chances of winning the day are so much greater in terms of how we think, what we prioritize and the, and the decisions and choices that we make. Fantastic. We've been joined here by Ben Crow, a professional mentor and leadership coach. No better time to provide some of those perspectives, comparing a lot of what he's doing with professional athletes and sport. Some great perspectives there, Ben, about being grateful, connection, slowing down, purpose mindset. So much there to unpack and really relevant for this audience. Thank you so much for joining us on The Wow Crowd. My pleasure and all the best for my prosperity. Plenty to unpack there indeed. And here to do that is our Wow Crowd panel. From an industry perspective, we've got Ali Glotzer, the Head of Accounting and Financial Services in Business Banking in Macquarie's Banking and Financial Services Group. For a practitioner perspective, we've got Bruce McFarlane. Bruce is CEO, head honcho of Australia's fastest growing and most progressive multidisciplinary firms, the Blue Rock. And well done, Bruce, voted one of the top places to work in Australia. And Stephen Jekyll, the technical guru behind my prosperity. So guys, Ben Crow had some great insights that are very relevant to the business world and particularly advisory, especially around the sense of connection and community. Uh, what do you think about this whole of wealth initiative? I definitely think the whole of wealth crowd initiative is an important thing for advisors to be able to connect to. You know, we're seeing a lot of changing in the advice space, whether it be firms that were in dealer groups now becoming self-licensed, or we're seeing them join other groups for, for varying reasons. I think creating a community of advisors that are there to support each other is a great way to, one, share best practice, but two, show uh, that continued support for each other. It's, it, it, it's an interesting one, Ali, when you talk about the movement away from dealer groups. Um, and is there a trend towards more advisors going self-licensed and therefore that need for community, you know, more important than it's ever been? Yeah, look, it's an interesting point. I think with the dealer group space, the, a lot of the advisors that are leaving are retiring. I think the, one, the other ones that are becoming self-licensed are really the top end of the dealer groups where they've kind of outgrown you know, being, um, you know, within a group like that now. So I think it's just a changing landscape where support is just different. So I think a dealer group 10 years ago was a lot about a framework for advisors to easily be able to deliver advice with advice being so complicated and continually evolving. I think being able to share best practice across a community rather than just an AFSL uh, is valuable. It's interesting you say that because, I mean, I, I've, I've known people personally that have been in advice and, and have run their own advice businesses and they've tended to find it quite lonely. And, you know, we talked earlier about that human element, the community aspect of it. I mean, Bruce, I'd be interested in your views on this. Is this something that you think the industry needs? If you think about advisors out there, I mean, you guys are probably very well connected, but for, for many advisors, um, you know, is this, some, is this a trend that we, we think will help the industry by having stronger connections? Oh, for sure. I think... Um... 
you know, whether you're an accountant, you're a lawyer, or you're, you know, financial advisor, if you're on your own or in just in your group, as Ali said, you know, it is quite lonely. It's quite stressful in terms of changing regulations and laws and all those different things. So you definitely need to have that support around you. Um, and there's lots of, probably accounting is a big one. There's lots of accountants that, um, you know, they, they go out on their own. They have half a dozen really good clients, but yeah, they, they need support around them to, to be able to service those clients well. So yeah, definitely. And it's just, it's, it's just more of a sounding board. You know, again, I reflect back on my personal experience in having advisors, you know, one of them was my brother who's now left the industry and others that um, have been very much on their own. Um, I mean, Maybe I'll get your view, Steve, on that, uh, if you've got an, a, an opinion there. Yeah, definitely. I think um, through it is a changing landscape and particularly being able to learn from others rather than potentially making every mistake along the, the path is, is really, really key, um, as well as just... Um, both the, the so I guess the the tooling and the insights, but also um, you're right, just the support in the community um, around that, and just helping to have a positive mindset, not getting overwhelmed by you know the changes or the amount of detail that's in there, or you know the need to embrace some new technology, but but learning from others and really getting the encouragement as you go down that path. Steve, um, you get to um, you get to look across a, a number of different practitioners out there. Um, what's your perspective on on this notion of you know? letting go of the things you can't control. Absolutely. Well, one of the points that Ben uh, made was that everyone craves control. And I think at My Prosperity, we're in a, quite a unique situation to be able to see both what's happening with the practitioners, but also with their clients. And I'd say that we're seeing that um, the manifestation of that and the fact that people do want to grab control where they can, uh, we're seeing that across the, the usage of our platform. So the fact that um, pretty much every single metric has um, shot up through the, the COVID period from you know, clients logging in, um, the login rates, app downloads, the amount of you know, assets and liabilities and data that's being put through into the platform, right through to the firms and the way that they're you know, engaging with their staff, the staff logins, the number of you know, digital documents signed and, and forms used, all of those usage metrics are really across the charts. And I guess the way that I really look at that is that this is a time where people are saying, what are the things that I'm maybe feeling a bit out of control and how do I get into control in those different areas? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good point, Steve, that um, we're not specifically talking about that. We'll, we'll maybe focus on the technology later, but it's been really interesting how, uh, you know, in this pandemic, there's been a real shift to digital. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, a lot of advisors looking at how they can use digital to, to perhaps get back more control. Um, just shifting gears a little bit, I'm, I'm particularly interested, I mean, some of the things that Ben speaks about is the purpose mindset, delivering on your why. I mean, these are well-known kind of themes now in the business world, but I'm, I'm interested in, you know, during this difficult time, I mean, what would you put the success of certain firms down to when you think about some of those, those, um, those themes? So maybe, Ali, we'll throw to you on that one. There's actually a few pillars that we see that, that drive successful firms. As you know, McQuarrie, I work with a lot of, um, high-performing businesses and we try and benchmark you know what high performance looks like and try and identify some of the key criteria that, that drive that. The first pillar that we see is that high-performing businesses consistently make better decisions and they're set up to execute on them successfully. An important part around that is the dedicated resources that they have in place and they do a really wonderful job of prioritising what is important and they have the discipline to finish what they start. Secondly, they have a strong and differentiated proposition. They understand who their ideal clients are 
and they make sure that they deliver to their clients' needs. A critical component of their success around this is having a client feedback mechanism, and that's prioritised then around the changes that they make to improve the client experience ongoing. So they're really testing and measuring as they learn, they're, they're getting that ongoing feedback from their clients and you know, they're, they're delivering on those changes. The third one is, you know, they really understand the benefits of scale and they've got a plan around sustainable growth. You know, the key is not about just driving growth for growth's sake. And so if you've got a strategy around growth and m and is an important component of that, then just being really clear on the types of clients that you want to acquire and where you want to be is going to be critical to making sure that you're successful around that M&A strategy. And finally, the fourth pillar that we see is that high-performance firms encourage a culture of ownership. They've got a good plan around succession and they really think about it from a long-term perspective in how they use their capital management and their balance sheet. I'm interested to know from you guys this whole notion of whole wealth, why it's important, but you know, are, are all firms heading down this path or is this going to continue to be an outlier for just a handful? I mean, I'm going to go to you, Bruce, because obviously this is something you guys have embraced from, from very early on in your journey, in fact, from day one, um, a very good example of a, uh, a multidiscipline whole of wealth type of approach. Um, can you pro provide a little bit of insights, Bruce, into the Blue Rock and your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, as someone who you know, Pete Layla is the founder of Blue Rock and um, he definitely has embraced this concept from early days. I guess the way we describe ourselves as, as an entrepreneurial advisory firm, so we support businesses and their owners. Um, and so that's been, um, you know, a key pillar right from the start of setting up the business. Um, you know, Pete's focus has been around being a trusted advisor, but that's embracing technology and how we can do that. So we, we describe ourselves internally as augmented advisors. So, you know, enabling the use of um, technology um, as a trusted advisor for our clients. So, you know, we, we think it's really important to understand the business and the person and the goals of both um, as we advise them, because obviously you can't, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the business and you don't understand the, the drivers for the business, the business owners and the family, um, you know, you, the, the, you'll miss things. And so it's been really important. Accounting is the core part for us and it's still about 50% of our business, but, you know, having wealth and finance and legal and even general insurance and digital as services around that has been, um, you know, we think important for us in that SME market that we focus on. Yeah, that's a good point because you think about, you know, obviously this year's been bloody tough for business owners and, and I use that term business owners because, you know, when a business is in trouble, clearly that's having an impact from a personal standpoint in terms of potentially the personal wealth side of things. I mean, Ali, you know, given your experience, you're, you're obviously advising or seeing a lot of accounting firms out there. I mean, is this whole of wealth, do you think that's something that's kind of come to the fore this year or is it, is it always been something that with the, the industry's focused on to sort of look at that holistic perspective of the financial position of both business and personal? Look, I think there's definitely been a big shift over the last five years around the number of firms that are providing a number of services. So I think if you, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, a lot of practices were single discipline. They were really focused on one thing that they did really, really well, whether it be tax advice, wealth advice, risk advice. I think firms have really you know, changed over the years. A number of them are moving into that multidiscipline space, similar to Blue Rock, and they're, they're delivering a whole range of services. I'm certainly passionate about you know, the firms that, that are delivering all the services to their clients, but I don't necessarily think that you have to have it all under one roof. So I think whilst we see a number of successful firms doing that, I'm certainly not 
suggesting you don't need to. Uh, I, I also think you know, the other side is true. And so when we think about single discipline firms, in order for them to compete with these multidiscipline practices, I think it's really important that they're clear on what their service proposition is and how they manage those other services through other service providers, whether it be really strong referral relationships, whether it be the way that they introduce their clients to those other firms, but just making sure that the client's actually having a seamless experience. I think that's the critical part, more so than owning it all in-house. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think I'll throw to you, Steve, because, you know, you see a whole mix, right? I mean, within my prosperity, uh, we've got accountants, uh, financial advisors and multidisciplinary firms. Can you, um, can you maybe give us a bit of perspective on, on what you're seeing around whole of wealth and particularly, you know, around that, 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 that point that Ellie raised, which is, you know, around building referrals. Does that, you know, provide a bit of perspective on that? Absolutely. To me, it's a, an absolute no-brainer if you look at it from the client's perspective for a second. And if you just say, you know, what would you rather? Would you rather go to someone who just um, focuses on one, one particular aspect of your finances? Or would you prefer to go somewhere where they just have that, that whole picture in mind? And so the, the whole of wealth um, is really starts with a, you know, an individual or a family. Um, and it's about saying, what do they actually care about? And usually it's not, hey, you know, I, want to, I want tax or I want to you know, look at my super or one particular thing. It's, hey, here's what I want to achieve in my life. And so we're seeing that firms are realising that they need to start with that conversation of actually what's important to, those, to that family, what's important to that client. And from that, all of a sudden, it, um, it, it's again obvious that to solve those things, to get the client to move forward in, in different areas, needs a team. It's not just one person, it's actually a whole team. Um, and I completely agree that a number of firms have tried to solve this by saying, we're going to have everything under one roof, which is great, and that, that's a great experience for the clients as well. But in actual fact, it, it's mostly about how do I create the right team around someone to achieve success? And whether that means reaching out to you know, one of the best people in this particular area and to pull them in at the right time to solve some particular things, um, but it's actually about building up the connections and that support network and that community um, around that, um, that client to get them to succeed. Look, that's a really good point. I mean, this notion of community, Steve, it's a um, good segue into this sort of last area I want to explore. You know, Ben spoke about the next revolution being this notion of emotional health, um, which, you know, and that's, you know, supported by this connection culture, which kind of, you know, comes back to this theme of how we're working jointly with other advisors in the referrals capacity. I mean, in my mind, this is quite a big vision and it's a pretty optimistic one that speaks to, you know, Ben's confidence in the human spirit. I mean, is this, is this something that we're going to see evolve? Because, you know, is that going to be something that the, the industry will adopt or are we just going to go back to being numbers obsessed? You know, this human element's key. Ellie, I'd love to hear your views on this, mate. Yeah, look, I definitely think we're going to see a real shift here. We're already seeing a significant amount of change across the advice space in the way that we're dealing with clients, whether it be lots of regular phone calls to kind of check in, see how they're going and, and, and kind of adding value, um, as well as just being really proactive in driving that community spirit, as Bruce mentioned earlier, around, um, you know, those virtual dinners and catch-ups and just kind of driving that engagement. So I think the way that we're interacting is quite different to what we, we've seen previously. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the technology is allowing us to kind of offer that differentiated uh, way of dealing with our clients and providing that kind of communication support. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, this is an industry, and Bruce, I'd love to hear your views on this, but, 
you know, when, when, you know, if you go back a year ago or, you know, in 2018, 19, we were in the midst of a, you know, the Royal Commission and I think there were a lot of question marks and clients out there sort of really questioning, you know, down to the core or the integrity of the industry. And then suddenly we're thrust into 2020 and suddenly the advice industry is at the core, you know, where, you know, we're seeing, I think it's been great. I mean, if there's something positive to take away from COVID, it is advice is back and advice is needed and we've played a key role in helping clients. Bruce, I mean, your perspective on this whole emotional health revolution, the connection culture, is this real or is it, um, are we just focused on balance sheets? Oh, no, no, it's definitely real. I, I really, um, what some of the things that, that Ben said really resonated with sort of what we're doing at Blue Rock and, and for us. But, you know, um, one of the mantras that Pete Layla says is that do the things you love with the people you care about and great things will happen. And, you know, for us, you know, that's, that, that sort of culture and community um, comes out in that. And so we're really focused, obviously, as I said, on, on our own people and our culture but our community is not not the business community and how we can help that business community and connecting across all different le levels and so i think we we're finding that clients yeah they are you know they need support and it's not just through they need support on their their balance sheet and their and their numbers but they also need to feel connected and and understand how it's helping them um, more holistically so yeah it's it's definitely something that we see and i think even banks in the big four banks, it's in the Macquarie and others, it's been, you know, during the Royal Commission, people, they, you know, people were negative about it. Whereas now it's the support that the banks and, and advisors are giving people is just so important for, for them um, going forward. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and the good thing about that, I mean, I have to say, I think it's, it's gone beyond PR too. I think it's been genuine. There's been real support. I, I agree. I, I didn't mention the banks. I mean, that is absolutely the case. And, you know, I think that's been, that's been a real bright spark for the industry. Steve, you're, you're obviously across that in, in a fairly big way. I mean, what, what are you seeing out there? And do you think the industry has shifted this year in terms of having, you know, more of that care element, that connection culture? Absolutely. And uh, I'll, I'll use one example, um, which is in some ways a little bit disturbing, but it sort of it brings the point home where I was speaking with an accountant um, and he was saying he had this sort of this moment of realisation where he was talking with a, a client going through doing his tax um, and the, the client was talking about how they were in just trouble with all this COVID stuff going on and, and felt out of control. And the accountant suddenly had this realisation that this had been a client for 20 years. For 20 years, he'd been doing the, the tax for this guy. And yet he wasn't set up. He didn't have everything under control um, when this hit. And it was a realization for the accountant that there was more than the, the thing that he loved doing was tax and, and compliance. And that's what the, you know, the accountant loved doing, but this client needed more than that. And so all of a sudden it was looking at some of the other ways of how do we uncover the, the needs of this client um, so that we can solve that, but, but ultimately help them to be holistically um, solved. And the, one of the keys there was embracing these little surveys that we have in My Prosperity, um, which is really about not numbers. It, it's not a mathematical formula. It's just asking simple questions around how someone's going. How do you feel like you're, you're going with your plans to retirement? And, and questions like that, they're very, very subjective. There is there's nothing mathematical about that, but it connects into the emotions and how someone's feeling about um, their, their financial well-being. And then ultimately then, you know, this accountant didn't want to solve most of those other problems, but uncovering that need or, or that thing that was concerning his client meant that he could then help connect them through to someone who could help. I think that's the, the heart of the issue. Yeah, it actually speaks to one of the things Ben spoke about, which was, you know, this, this whole notion that accountants, 
you know, your purpose and your why is not, I didn't get into it to complete tax returns, right? Your purpose and your why is very much about, you know, I got in this business to provide advice to help clients achieve their financial goals to have a better life, you know? And, and I think that's, um, I, I think personally this year has really sort of brought that to the fore uh, in a way that's, that's, that's quite authentic and, and, and I think it's been good for the industry. So look guys, I mean, I'm going to, um, I'm just having a look online here. I've got a couple of questions that have come through and Steve, I'm going to throw this one to you, but um, you kind of touched on this a bit, but what do you think the role of technology can play in, in actually helping us achieve this? Yeah, so obviously with a, with a deep background, I think technology is key. Um, to me, the place that it needs to, to play is to do a lot of the heavy lifting um, and make life easier both for the clients, but also for the practitioners. And it means that less time is spent on the sort of the, you know, the details and the busy work and more time can actually be spent with the client and actually understand what is it that they care about? What are they trying to achieve? What does, you know, living their best financial life mean to them? And if you're able to, um, you know, get technology to help out with all the other stuff that needs to happen it means you actually can spend more time in those those deep deeper and meaningful conversations with clients so that you can help uncover what they really want to achieve um, and then help them on that path towards success uh, yeah look, i agree and i think you know ali you and i've spoken about this subject which is you know the industry has been sort of administration and compliance obsessed and what we want to do is change the conversation to get back to you know helping the client i mean have you got some tips there in terms of the technology side of it being able to, as Steve pointed out, you know, make those conversations possible? Absolutely. I mean, the, the great thing with all the data feeds that everyone has access to now through the advisor teams is you can actually be a lot more proactive with your clients. You can start seeing the trends in their financials. You can start seeing the trends of their investments. You can really start talking through behaviours and, and the ways that they think about money. So I see technology as an enabler to drive much better conversations, be a lot more forward-looking in supporting your clients and really helping them achieve their goals. The other way that I see technology playing an important role is there's only one in five people in Australia getting financial advice today. So in order for us to get more people having advice in an environment where we're getting less advisor numbers is, is really needing to lean on technology to play a part in helping deliver advice at scale. Yeah, it's a good point, really good point that I think that, um, you know, the advice gaps broadening, widening, um, we have to look at technology, drive efficiencies, keep access to advice, you know, at a point where we can have that available to more Australians, great point. Guys, I'm gonna finish, I've got a, a question here from Vayner, a law firm in Camberwell. Your top three tips for success. I'm not gonna ask for three, each of you, cause that would be nine, sorry, Diana, but um, can I get, maybe one or two from each of you guys. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Bruce. Tips for success. Um, I think it's uh, look after yourself. You're not much good to anyone else if you're not looking after yourself. Um, and then looking after your team, focus on your people in your business um, and your community. Fantastic. Uh, Steve, what are your top tips for success? Absolutely. I think it's about really, um, to, to echo a lot of what Ben talked about, understanding the why of your firm, like why you're there at a firm level, um, and, and then driving that down to you know, the why for your clients, um, so you understand what they're trying to achieve, so you can help them achieve that. And then, of course, use technology to make the whole thing easier for everyone. Fantastic. And then last but not least, Ali, what are your tips? I, I think thinking about the employee experience is absolutely critical. We know that if we deliver a great employee experience, that's going to translate into even better client experiences. So make sure you've got a strategy in how you're supporting your staff through this challenging time, but even 
as, as we get to a COVID norm. Fantastic. Well, listen, guys, it's uh, been fabulous having you on the show today and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That concludes our first episode of Wow Crowd. We really hope you got a dose of difference and we'll see you at the next Wow Crowd.